So usually toward the end of the intro, I say a ruckus maker is somebody who makes three commitments, somebody who commits to their continuous growth, somebody who commits to challenging the status quo, and someone who commits to designing the future of education right now. But I want to start with that point because this episode starts with that point. And Dr. Chris Thurber joined me on the podcast, and we started off talking about how challenging the status quo, innovating, doing something disruptive ages ago on a, on a you know, on campus got him into some big trouble. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that he was far ahead of his time. And the stuff he was doing back then is now basically common practice. So we'll start off with that story. But you'll want to stick around throughout the whole podcast because toward the end, Dr. Chris mentioned something in terms of pressure that we put on kids, where as an adult, we think we're actually applying a pressure that's motivating and helpful, and it's anything but that. And it was really eye-opening for me, what he shared. It made a lot of sense. Uh, And he gave some better ways to motivate and connect, right, with, with students and kids. Hey, it's Danny, Chief Ruckus Maker over at Better Leaders, Better Schools. I'm a principal development and retention expert. I'm a best-selling author. I host not one, but two of the world's most downloaded podcasts. And we'll be right back with the main conversation after a few messages from our show sponsors. Learn how to recruit, develop, retain, and inspire outstanding individuals and teams to deliver on the vision of your school in leading people. A certificate in school management and leadership course from Harvard. Get started at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Teachers use TeachFX to record a lesson and automatically get personalized insights into their classroom conversation patterns and teaching practices. See TeachFX for yourself and learn about special partnership options for ruckus makers at teachfx.com slash BLBS. Why do students struggle? I'd argue that they lack access to quality instruction, but think about it. That's totally out of their control. What if there was something we could teach kids then? What if there was something within their control that would help them be successful in every class? And it's not a magic pill or a figment of your imagination. When students internalize executive functioning skills, they succeed. Check out the new self-paced online course brought to you by our friends at Organized Binder that shows teachers how to equip their students with executive functioning skills. You can learn more at organizedbinder.com slash go. Well, hello, Ruckus Makers. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Thurber, who is an award-winning writer and thought leader who has dedicated his professional life to improving how adults care for kids and to enhancing the experience of adventurous young people who are spending time away from home. A graduate of Harvard, who's a proud sponsor of the podcast, by the way, in UCLA, Dr. Thurber has served as a psychologist and instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy since 1999. Dr. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. It's great to be here. Yeah, and uh, you're a, a great new connection. I was really excited about your work, so let's dig in. Okay. You know, ruckus makers, uh, they often get in trouble innovating in education. And you had this experience recording discussions and innovating how students prepared for finals. 
Tell us that story. So it sort of has two parts. The first is that I would, like many teachers, and I should say, here we are in my office at Phillips Exeter Academy, and the bulk of my workday is spent meeting with students individually for psychotherapy. But I also have the pleasure of teaching an introduction to psychology class, which is an elective for our seniors, the oldest students who are in upper school, so grades 9 through 12, and located here in Exeter, New Hampshire, about an hour north of Boston. So I had taught this class for 8 or 10 years before I realized, you know, when I offer to have a review session, very few students show up. So if we had an exam on Wednesday, on Tuesday night, I would make myself available in the student center and say, look, I'll be there between seven and eight. If anyone has any questions, you know, stop by. This is in addition to the other supplementary materials that I had provided to them to help them track the content of the course and digest it, analyze it, and understand it. And the students who would show up were either the ones who had prepared beautifully, and maybe they had one specific question, but they were so conscientious, they couldn't not come to the review session, although I would add they probably didn't need it. And then there were always a couple of students who would come who hadn't started reviewing at all and were hoping to, through osmosis, understand the last unit of the course. So I thought, this is not a green... It's time to make a ruckus. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a different way to do this. And it just so happened that I was going to be out of town the night before the next exam. So my standard model was not going to work. And I decided that I would do a sort of podcast, although that makes it sound like it was serialized. It was just an audio recording of my going through my notes and flipping through the chapters that were relevant to this unit and offering some commentary, some review, some clarification of difficult concepts. And I also got to sections where I said, oh, you know, this thing on page 326, we didn't really talk about that much. And I'm not sure I like the treatment in this book. So you can skip that. And the students were wildly enthusiastic after the exam. They said, oh, that was so helpful. All the teachers should do this. Because what we got was, in your own words, you know, your take on the content, you highlighted for us what you felt was relevant and mm-hmm. not so relevant for one reason or another. It really helped us focus our studies. And you know, the one thing that we would just love is if you shared that, not the night before, but maybe two nights before. And I said, easy enough. Mm. So that was great. And that all went smoothly. But I did get in trouble for then thinking to myself, you know, this audio recording, and mind you, this is, like I said, 14, 15 years ago. So we didn't use Zoom like we do now or other platforms like StreamYard like we do now. And I thought there are times when students don't come to class because they either sleep through it because they've got another big test you know, after my class and they need the time to study or they feel they need the time to study. And you could blame it on poor time management and so forth. But I, you know, what's inarguable is that they're missing the content of the class. And we're a a Mm -hmm. school that sort of uses a flipped classroom model, discussion-based learning. So the expectation for the 12 or 13 students in any class is that you you do the reading or the problem sets or the data collection, whatever prior to the class. And then we use the class time to discuss, to deepen our understanding, to ask questions for clarification. But we have a discussion. And sometimes those discussions are really enlightening. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love teaching so much mm. is, and also why I love psychotherapy is uh, I'm learning all the time. So I thought to myself, rather than recording absences, and it should be noted that if students accrue in you know a given term, there are about 44 class meetings per term, and students are taking five classes at a time. So you know, you 200 odd classes. If you miss three. If you miss more than three, you now have to check into your dorm early. And if you miss, you know, a bunch more, then there's a probationary period. So you, basically, you're going to get in trouble if you're not in class. And I thought I can use recording to eliminate even the possibility of an absence. I don't necessarily care why a student is absent unless they're chronically absent. I just want them to benefit from the discussion because it is often really good, which is not so much a reflection on my facilitation skills as it is on the students intelligence and creativity and their good preparation. So I will, with students' permission, make an audio recording of class and right after class, just post it on the class website. And so I did that and the students thought it was great. And I said, you know, look, the way that this is going to work is if you're absent, I'm going to record it, but I will delete it. That is to say, I will erase your absence and you will not be penalized if you listen to the recording and write me a couple of paragraphs about your thoughts and what you would have contributed to the discussion had you been there. Right, and right. you know, if this happens more than a few times, we need to have a discussion about your attendance. But otherwise, essentially, I was making up the first ever at Phillips Exeter Academy way to make up an absence and not be penalized as long as you do the learning. So I thought it was great. I didn't think that I would need to ask anyone's permission except the students. They should know that they're being audio recorded and it wasn't for public consumption. It was just on the password protected uh, platform that we use, which happens to be Canvas, but there are many others. And about halfway through our 11-week term, I got a call from the dean of faculty who wanted to meet me for coffee one afternoon. And I thought... They uh, give you oh, a promotion. Exactly. I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> so, somehow they've heard about this or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, get an award. Or <laughs> Instead, I got... Sort of take it out politely to the woodshed, as it were. Like, Chris, you can't do this because, you know, you're making an audio recording of, you know, your discussions. It's These are minors, most of them under 18. And I said, well, you know, I have their permission and it's not public, but here's why it's brilliant. And uh, he kind of thought it was an okay idea, but there was just this fairly dogmatic rule that you couldn't record audio or video. Now, of course... That seems laughable given all the asynchronous work sure. that we had to do during the pandemic. But that was my ruckus. That was one of them anyway. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you had the experience, you see how the students respond, and then you have also the uh, woodshed moment too. So what, yeah. what did you learn from that experience? Well, I mean, one of the things I learned, and it sounds a little prosaic, but any of us who is working in an institution of any sort, whether that's a school or a company or a summer camp, there is value to going through appropriate channels. It slows things down. Uh, speaking personally, I feel less innovative when I mm -hmm. have to check with my you know colleagues about certain things. But there is value to that. I have always wondered if I had proposed this and who knows what subcommittees would have had to approve it. Would it have gotten approved? Could I have done it? Would it have been more broadly adopted as a thing? I don't know. But that's one lesson that I learned is sometimes uh, it's worth 
thinking about the systems in which you're embedded. Yeah. I think the second thing that I learned is much more important, at least for my own teaching and learning, and that is experiment and try out mm-hmm. difference and listen to what your students have to say about their learning and what is most effective. I can't remember who wrote it, but there was a wonderful article in a journal of higher ed a few years ago that talked about what makes a quality homework assignment. And are you advancing mm-hmm. your students' thinking? Do they have the tools they need to learn from what you're assigning is more better? Uh, are you asking them to just repeat what they've learned in class or, you know, and I guess there are, you know, that's a whole topic in and of itself, but I became much more thoughtful about how I led class and also the sorts of things that I provided as supplements and stopped thinking very traditionally about we're going to go chapter, there's an outline, you know, and those things, of course, are helpful, but they're not as helpful as we would like to believe. Right. And so you mentioned the word systems, right? And universities, you know, secondary, post-secondary, yeah. elementary, right? They're, they're all districts. These are systems. These are bureaucracies. You know, you mentioned uh, going through the proper channels and change <laughs> can be slow, right? Yeah. So that's interesting. That That's a real tension because it, the <laughs> other, you know, end of it is that we need to innovate. We need to recreate uh, education in some respects. So yeah. How do we get organizations, especially these uh, entrenched ones, right? These big systems open to innovation and a little uh, more comfortable letting go of the entrenchment, right? And, yeah. And the thinking that these are the way things are done here. So this is where I put on my psychologist hat and think, right? if it's been entrenched and you know people are referring to it as a tradition or this is our policy and maybe they wouldn't themselves use the adjective entrenched, there's pride associated with that. And if you've been a successful institution, there's also fear that change would somehow be for the worse. So, I, you know, I try to recognize that at some level, almost everyone in a system or an organization shares the same subordinate goal. But, you know, as Daniel Kahneman and other people far smarter than I have said, we often let our emotions guide our decision-making in irrational or illogical kinds of ways. So practically, Danny, what I learned from this is one way to thread the needle. Say like, boy, I want to innovate. I really don't want to be slowed down by the bureaucracy. I know I'm up against some pride and fear and, you know, traditions and, and whatnot. And it can feel stagnant. You can appeal to people's pride by saying, you know, here are all the wonderful things about this institution. And one of the things that we should all pride ourselves in here, whether it's a university or company or what, is innovation and being an example for other companies, schools, et cetera, to follow. And we don't always know how innovation is going to work, but it's pretty clear in any industry, that if you keep doing things the same way, at some point, you know, you're going to lose your luster. And that gets people thinking about, okay, so innovation is worth it. And as I said, like thread the needle. When I make a proposal now, 
you know, for changing something, I say, this is a pilot program. And Mm -hmm. all I want to do is pilot this for a term and see how it goes. Uh, One paragraph, two paragraph summary of what it would involve. Like, I'm going to audio record classes, post them on Canvas, and we'll see, you know, what students think of that. If it's a pilot program, usually you don't have to jump through so many hoops, as long as what you're doing is ethical, of course. And you do something else that's extraordinarily valuable for any kind of entrenched organization or maybe any organization that's just, excuse me, being thoughtful about change, which is you collect data. And so when the pilot is over, however long it lasts, a term, a year, and you're able to say, okay, so this is what I did. This is kind of what was going on before. This this is what I tried to change. Uh, This is how successful the change was, like some commentary on the fidelity with which you executed your mission. And this is what students thought, or this is what you know, employees thought, or here's how we, I think in like comparing one term to another 12 or 13 students to another 12 or 13, I, I wouldn't base it on their grades. It's not a big enough sample, There's too much noise in the data. But if we're talking about recording classes, as an example, being able to say uh, students reported that they learned a lot more, that they got a lot out of it, that they were more excited about the course, that sort of thing. And and it may not be for everybody. We're not mandating that you record your classes, but here's a cool thing that you can do and it's not expensive and students like it. And it, when it's not just an idea, but you've got some data to support your idea, then I think you get more widespread buy-in. Got it. Well, hey, let's start talking about your book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure. Yeah. I encourage ruckus makers to pick that up. So... Pressure, I think, is instinct, instinctive, you know, especially uh, for ruckus makers who find themselves in a leadership position and they use it at times as a means to an end. Uh, what kind of pressure is unhelpful and what kind of pressure works? Well, that's the right way to ask the question because for, I think, centuries, if not millennia, we've been asking a quantitative question, how much pressure is enough? So in the case that's of the book, it, yeah, right. Hank Weisinger, who's also a psychologist and my co-author on this book, yeah. once we get to know each other and, and Hank had written a book for uh, the business world uh, called, boy, Hank would kill me that I'm not remembering it, uh, Performing Under Pressure. There you go. Whew. Hank, we're still friends. You get, and you actually and, got the title while performing under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Thank you. you. Thank you. Oh, that was a very meta moment. Yeah. So, but we realized... Say. It's not sort of Goldilocks, uh, you know, there's the just right amount of pressure, but it's what kind of pressure, as you asked the question, what mm-hmm. kind's healthy, what mm-hmm. kind's not healthy. As you also said, it is instinctive. So anyone who has like a goal, which I think anyone alive does, maybe your goal is to sit on the couch and, you know, eat potato chips and watch a movie on Netflix. Okay, that's your goal. And if you get a phone call or you know, your next door neighbor's chopping down a tree with a chainsaw and you can't hear the surround sound or whatever, you know, you feel annoyance, but it is, mm. it, it, it could be certainly conceptualized as, well, there is some internally generated pressure to have a certain experience and you're not meeting expectations. The kind of pressure that Hank and I focused on is the kind that well-intentioned, loving caregivers instinctively provide, which is for their progeny, their kids, to do well. And you can define doing well however you want. We'll talk more about that Mm -hmm. in a minute. But I don't think there's a way to sidestep pressure. And it is 
instinctive because we care, because we love our kids. And you could be a teacher who loves their classmates or their students. You could be a camp counselor who, you know, loves their campers, you know, and I'm, I'm using that verb love in a very, you know, generic way, but we care about the outcomes. And because we care about the outcomes, we can often apply a kind of pressure that is supremely unhealthy. So here's the distinction. Mm-hmm. Unhealthy pressure defines success very narrowly. It frames the outcomes as very high stakes. It is often overly involved. That is to say, the outcome for the kid is something that you're overly invested in. Your happiness hinges to too great an extent on this particular outcome. Whereas healthy pressure defines success broadly. It doesn't make the outcome, it doesn't frame the outcome as do or die. And you are involved as a loving caregiver, teacher, coach, mentor, parent in an age-appropriate way. So I'll give you a very easy to understand example that close to home for me, which is college admissions. Uh, So students here at Exeter, uh, you know, are thinking about college probably when they start as 14-year-old ninth graders. And if, maybe they've started thinking about it before, but the point is we're prep school, preparatory in the sense of preparing for the next exciting chapter of your life, which for most of our graduates is university. If parents or any other loving caregiver says something like, well, you know, you got to get this GPA and that's going to get you into one of these 10 schools that are really the top schools. And that's really what you want. And, you know, if you don't go to one of those schools, it's life is going to be tough because you won't have the right alumni network and you're not going to get a good education. You're not going to get a good job. It's not going to pay a lot of money, whatever it is. When you define success very narrowly, like the culmination of your high school or secondary school experience must be university and not just university. It must be one of these, you know, eight or 10 universities and very high stakes. If it's not one of these, it's not going to be a great outcome. And then again, just over involvement. I'm going to micromanage the whole process along the way that leaves young people feeling as if the love they have from teacher, coach, mentor, parent is contingent on a really specific performance from them Mm -hmm. and might be withdrawn or the esteem that adult has for them might be significantly diminished. And that's, I mean, that's a horrible thing to imagine. Ironically, that kind of pressure, even though it is applied with good intentions, produces worse performance. It's actually a decrement in performance Mm -hmm. and also a significant uh, impact on a young person's mental health. So that kind of pressure is associated with high anxiety, higher rates of depression, even suicide, and poor academic performance. But if you say, look, your your whole experience here is about like in high school, secondary school, exploring, learning, your effort is what is going to be most related to the benefits of learning. And so my expectation is that you always try your best and kind of make a distinction between being like, Danny, I want you to be your best rather than the best. You know, if you're on the diving team or 
playing lacrosse or whatever it might be. That's what I want for you as, say, your parent is for you to be your best. You don't have to be the captain. You don't have to be the fastest runner. You don't have to be the top student on the math team or whatever it is. And provided that you do your best consistently, there'll be lots of opportunities. And one of those might be you apply to university and hopefully are accepted to a few and can really find one that seems like a good match to your interests and abilities. And there, like here, if you put in a lot of effort, you're going to get a fantastic education. And who knows what that will lead to? So success is defined broadly. And you know, you're know you not micromanaging things. And that is associated not only with better mental health and better physical health, but also with better performance. Right. Yeah. So one approach, I think, uh, sounds a lot more flexible and has a lot more uh, possibility you know, ingrained yeah. in it. And then the other one is uh, just so narrowly defined. It's rigid, brittle, uh, right. that kind of thing. So, all right. Well, hey, I am enjoying this conversation, Dr. Chris. We're going to get some quick messages in from our sponsors. When we return, Great. I'd love to ask you about the different kinds of pressures kids experience and why being mindful of them uh, is important. So learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and empower your teams with Harvard Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get online professional development that fits your schedule. Courses include leading change, leading school strategy and innovation, leading people, and leading learning. You can apply today by going to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Now, I also want to tell you about our other sponsor, Organized Binder, which is a program that gives students daily exposure to goal setting, reflective learning, time and task management, study strategies, organizational skills, and more. Organized Binder's color-coded system is implemented by the teacher through parallel process with students, helping them create a predictable, independable classroom routine. You can learn more and improve your students' executive functioning at organizedbinder.com. You know what student engagement sounds like? Students ask questions. They build on each other's ideas. The classroom's alive with conversation. Creating that kind of classroom is much easier said than done. TeachFX helps teachers make it happen. Their AI provides teachers with insights into high-leverage teaching practices like how much student talk happened, which questions got students talking. TeachFX is like giving each teacher their own on-demand instructional coach to help them boost student engagement in learning as well as their own. It's eye-opening for teachers and scales the impact of every coach and principal. Ruckus makers can start a free pilot with your teachers today. Go to teachfx.com slash BLBS to launch a free pilot for your school. Again, start that free pilot by visiting teachfx.com slash BLBS today. And lastly, I would like to just make an invitation. I'm hosting a live summer event uh, this July in Denver. I'm teaching a brand new framework called the Leadership Optimization Compass. And the guiding question that's guiding, you know, the whole event is what would be possible if you are operating consistently at your best? I think that's a powerful question and I would love the opportunity to serve you. You can learn more at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Denver. 
And we are back with Dr. Chris Thurber, who is the author of The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure. I love that title, by the way. And so we're, we were talking earlier about how pressure is instinctive and the difference between unhelpful, helpful pressure. And from that discussion, I think we were hearing a lot about the types of pressure parents and teachers uh, put on students. But that's not the only kind of pressure that, you know, uh, kids experience, right? And I think there's other pressures out there and it would be really great for ruckus makers listening to be more mindful of those other pressures. So do you mind sharing some insights around that idea? Sure. You know, outside of academic pressure, you can also feel a lot of athletic pressure or artistic pressure. And those are allied in often the same institutions. Like there are students here and at every school who are engaged in academic as well as artistic and athletic things. And I would say easy to, you know, extrapolate the principles that we just talked about to those domains. What I want to mention are some more insidious forms of pressure. Mm. And it's worth mentioning too that uh, we all internalize different things from our experiences and there is great variability in what students or young people or older people put on the pressure that they put on themselves. So yes, there is a lot of internally generated pressure. And I think one of the things that I often ask students with whom I'm meeting, if I'm sensing that there is some depression or anxiety or worse, is about the pressure that they put on themselves. And have they defined it very narrowly, even if their primary caregivers and teachers and coaches haven't in whatever domain that, that success looks like this, or they've been very specific. There's a dollar figure that they're putting on their dream salary or they really feel that unless they get a certain GPA or win the concerto competition or are part of the, you know, uh, division champion team that it won't have been worth it to devote so much time to soccer or devote so much time to math or whatever it might be. So I go through the same parameters with them, but uh, again, internally generated pressure sometimes doesn't get the examination that it should. We also feel a lot of cultural pressures, Danny, to dress a certain way, to look a certain way, to you know have a certain gender identity that necessarily matches what our natal sex was, to have a certain sexual orientation, and. When I say insidious, I mean, some of these messages are pretty subtle. For example, you know, here we are in, uh, you know, recording this in February and some people are going to be listening to it this month. Some people will be listening to it in May. But there are a lot of family gatherings over the holidays, in the winter, maybe during the summer if there's vacation. And, you know, Aunt Mary or Uncle Bob is going to ask this young person, you know, the hackneyed question, how's school going? And I've so often heard the follow-up, you know, if it if you were talking to someone who identifies as a boy or a young man, do you have a girlfriend? Right. And at first blush, that's a harmless question, but it implies, unless you know for sure that the person you're talking with happens to be heterosexual uh, and identifies as male, that that's their romantic pursuits. Yeah. And, you know, it could be that Aunt Mary or Uncle Bob is sort of 
takes a step back and is a little mortified, but maybe apologizes if the child says or the young person says, well, actually, you know, no romance in my life right now, but but I'm not interested in having a girlfriend. I'm interested in having a boyfriend. Oh, I didn't realize, Mm -hmm. you know. And what more often happens is that young person doesn't say anything, but what they experience is, you know, an amplification of the societal pressure to, for example, be heterosexual. And it, that's just one example of a kind of insidious cultural pressure that exists when messages come in from the people the young person, uh, you know, trusts and cares about. A lot of times, I, when I do parent forums at the school where I work, parents will say, you know, it's hard whether our student is a day student or a boarder. We feel like we can't find out what's going on in their life. We ask, you know, but they're reluctant to talk. They seem reticent. And they say, well, what are the questions that you usually... Oh, well, I'm very conscientious. I, you know, I remember that they said they had a biology test. So usually, like, I would call them up or text them and say, you know, how'd your bio test go? And I just pause and the room goes silent and then people start to laugh and they realize, you know, it's not a great question. Not that you can't ask questions about performance, like, did you win the game? Or, you know, how was the orchestra? Or how was your recital? Or what was your bio test like? But we can do better as parents. And I feel like, you know, if we're talking about students, most of them work really hard and don't want to talk more about academic. If we ask more inspiring questions to our kids, we're likely to find out more as caregivers. Mm. Like, tell me something that has become clear to you since the last time we talked. Or Mm. what's the best thing that's happened since this morning? Or I know you had a bio test today. What'd you learn on the test? Which is not so much focused on outcome, right? Win, lose, A, B, but instead is focused on the process of learning. In other words, What's insidious is we're communicating our values and also laying the foundation for a relationship without saying, okay, hang on, here comes a value statement. I'm going to ask you how your bio test was. And that is designed to communicate the importance I attribute to grades and your performance academically. (laughs) You know, like nobody says that, but we imply it when we keep asking those questions all the time. So, yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, I think very inspiring and helpful too, you know, to, those are very deep questions too, right? It's like peering more into the soul, like what's going on in here, you know, tell me about that. I'm interested in that. So, right, right. Really great stuff. Thank you, Dr. Chris. For Wait, yeah, sure. You can that. also, I would just add, you can swing in the other direction too, which is one of the best ways that I've discovered to communicate with my own kids. I have two boys who are 18 and 20 okay. that can lead to deeper conversations and that's humor. You know, my boys were constantly sharing memes with each other and funny reels from Instagram. And my wife and I were, you know, lying in bed one night thinking, you know, this is an entree. This is like, wolf. I mean, truth be told, what we find funny isn't always what my boys find funny because, you know, I'm 54. (laughs) So by definition, I'm not cool anymore and haven't been for decades. But the four of us as a family unit, we share a lot of humor, which again, it just makes it, fun for us. And I feel like my boys relate to me and my wife on that level very easily, which a lot of people do. 
And then if they have something that they want to share, disclose, discuss, it, it's easier because there is no like predetermined or monolithic content or basis for our relationship. It can be playful. Mm-hmm. It can be serious. And yeah, I think somehow as our kids get older, we think they maybe they lose their senses of humor or the conversations need to be more businesslike. And if it's always that, then yeah, your kids will not share a lot. Super helpful. I know the ruckus makers will really enjoy that. And thank you for sharing again, Dr. Chris. Yeah. So let's get to the marquee question. And if you could put one message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message be? My message would be seek the joy of being alive, which mm. I'm borrowing from Canadian American naturalist Ernest Thompson Seton. And one of the woodcraft laws that he purported fortitude, truth, beauty, love, and a piece of the lamp of love is seek the joy of being alive. So that would be my marquee. Brilliant. And Dr. Chris, if you were building your dream school, you didn't have any constraints uh, when it comes to resources, but your only limitation was your imagination. How would you build your dream school? What would be the three guiding principles? One is that it would be immersed in nature as much as possible. So not only in a rural setting, but it would provide or have architecture that allowed people to see and be in nature as much as they could during the day and at other times. The second would be I'd ground it in a principle of leadership by example. And the third would be I would hire people based on their character far and away or far above their academic qualifications. I don't want somebody with a PhD in biology necessarily to teach biology. I want a really good person. And yes, they have to know something about biology. But I think character first, academic qualifications second. Right. So we covered a lot of ground today and, you know, dove into some extremely meaty topics of everything we talked about, Dr. Chris. What is the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Well, as I said, Hank and I realized that we as parents and most other parents had been asking the wrong question. And our book was based on asking a different question and the benefits to people of doing that. So I would say, even though I haven't said this explicitly yet, learn from your mistakes. We learn the most from our mistakes. That's the best learning opportunity anyone can have. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.